Well, good morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, today we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And uh, before I read into the passage, uh, I want to tell you a story. And uh, I want uh, to see if you guys can guess uh, who this person is. Um, so the story goes many years ago that there was a man who lived in a godly manner, outspoken for his faith in God. Uh, he also lived very simply. He chose to not really to conform to the ways of the times. He chose not to, when he was offered even high ruler's food, he decided, you know, I don't, I don't need that. I'm going to stick with the basics. Um, and because he followed God, he excelled in his position. He continued to move up the ranks over time because God was with him. Um, in fact, he was actually so, uh, so well respected that uh, he was placed third in command over the people of that nation. And when the next leader took office, he was then put over 120 high officials uh, who, he, who he was uh, in charge of. And then the ruler at the time, even it says that he entertained the idea of setting him over the realm of the entire nation. Uh, but the officials and the governors who were below him, they despised him. They, they did not like at all this man. Partially because they were jealous of, you know, his, his authority, his power over them. But partially because in any government or any kind of place where you have power, there is a potential for corruption. People like to abuse that power that they're given. And being that this man was a righteous man who followed God and would not conform to the ways that most people would do with power, they thought, man, we're not going to be able to do what we want to do with our power. We're not going to be able to go forward with our plans uh, to do things that would be evil or wicked. And so, uh, with that in mind, they thought of, well, how are we going to get rid of this guy? How are we going to get him out of power? How are we going to get him out of our lives? And uh, they tried to examine this man, uh, and they plotted some way to accuse him. And so upon examining him, they looked thoroughly to every nook and cranny they could find, and yet it says that they discovered an excellent spirit was in him. It later says they could find no charge or fault in him because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault in him. And ultimately, they concluded about this man, after frustration after frustration of looking and looking, they said, we cannot find any charge against this man. And so with nothing to accuse him of, and with the, the, official, or the high leader at the time actually enjoying and being respectful of this man because of his integrity, because of his loyalty to the, to the ruler... Uh, they had nothing to bring up to the king as to why this man should be uh, eradicated from the kingdom. And so, with nothing to be found, they said, you know what? That, I know what we'll do. We'll make, if this man it can only be charged for his godliness, we'll make his godliness ungodliness. If there's only righteousness found in this person, we'll make his righteousness become unrighteousness. And so they instituted a law and said, O king, sign this law. And without much thought, the king quickly signed this law into action. And quickly, soon after that law was implemented, this righteous man broke the very law that was implemented by the king. And the law demanded that no one could pray to any other god. And Daniel prayed to the god of the universe. And as you can tell already, I told you the name. It's Daniel. He was then placed into uh, the lion's den. And although the passage we're going to talk about today doesn't actually explicitly say or talk about Daniel. 
Uh, Daniel is referred to, and he's a picture of a person who endures persecution for his godly living and for the sake of um, and for the sake of the Lord. And uh, I just want to, before we look at others, he's just one of many examples of prophets, of, of men who were godly and chose to live lives that were according to uh, God's plan. And he was persecuted for it. But if we, if we uh, look at just his life and the persecution, we have to then take a step back and ask ourselves uh, about the idea of persecution. You know, why or what, what exactly is persecution, first of all? Uh, why does it happen? Why, why are we being persecuted? And then when we are persecuted, how do we respond to it? And even, uh, even more than that, what, what rewards does God offer to those who are being persecuted for righteousness sake? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And this passage, I'm just going to give you a quick recap to where we were and then bring us to where we are now. Uh, the, the, we are concluding now this section of the Beatitudes. Here in Matthew chapter 5, we've gone through seven Beatitudes, or seven blessings, you could call it, that are upon Christians. And remember that these Beatitudes, or these blessings, are a picture of the ideal citizen of heaven, the ideal Christian who follows the Lord faithfully. And uh, Matt pointed out very, uh, very well last week when he said that if you took the inverse of all these Beatitudes, that would be everything that the world would stand for. All of these things are, you know, if you, you know, blessed are the meek, you can say, the world would say, blessed are the proud, you know, being proud for who you are and acting however you want to behave. And yet, these ideas are so radical because they're so different than the world, uh, w- than the world would do, than the world values, and so different from how worldly people live their lives. And so, let's just quickly paint this picture of the type of person that Jesus has been describing over these past few weeks. We first hear about the poor in spirit, that they are blessed. A person who is poor in spirit is someone who realizes their own helplessness. Someone who realizes, I need the Lord every minute of my life. I have to rely on him for my strength, for my provisions, for every aspect of my life. Someone Blessed are those who mourn. Someone who has a healthy view of their own sinfulness. Someone who has a healthy view of the world and the current state it's at. Someone who has a, a view on eternity and realizes if these unsaved people do not repent, they are going to spend eternity away from God. Blessed are those who mourn. The meek, someone who is gentle and takes a lowly position in life. They're not trying to promote themselves. They're not trying to uh, exalt themselves higher. They don't have a high estimation of themselves. Blessed are the meek. Someone who uh, thirsts or hungers and thirsts for righteousness. This is essentially everything the world doesn't stand for. Uh, someone with honesty, who longs for integrity, for justice. They practice holiness in their own day-to-day lives. Everything the world doesn't stand for. Blessed are the merciful. This is someone who has a heart of compassion towards others, even when they don't deserve it. Showing kindness to them, even when they can't return the favor. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Someone who uh, doesn't have a wrongful motive, or they're trying to accomplish an agenda uh, through their actions. It's someone who knows that God sees every intention of my heart, and yet I want to live a life that's holy and pure before his sight. And uh, last week we finally concluded with, blessed are the peacemakers. Someone who doesn't look 
to stir up some strife. He doesn't want to stir the pot, as it were, uh, with people, but instead he's actively intervening, trying to make peace among people, pursuing peace by whatever means they can. That is the person that Jesus is picturing here. That's what the seven Beatitudes we've looked at so far is the person uh, that Jesus is calling here blessed. And we have to ask ourselves two questions, really. First of all, do we exemplify these Beatitudes? Are we a picture of an ideal Christian that Jesus is describing here? The ideal citizen of heaven. And secondly, if this person uh, is living in this world, if this person is exemplifying all the things that Christ has pictured here, then what would the world think of them? Would they grow to love them? Would they uh, cherish them? Would they respect them? Or would they grow to hate them, despise them, want nothing to do with this kind of person? And the answer actually is found in our passage today. Uh, in Matthew 5, uh, chap- uh, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. So we'll pick up reading. These are the, the final, final Beatitudes of the section. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these are the final, I'll call them the final two Beatitudes. Um, either way, it's, the idea is surrounding blessings upon those who are persecuted. And it, it's really a topic most people don't like to talk about. They don't want to hear about it. They, they dislike persecution going through it personally. Uh, it's not something that people would say that's a blessing to me. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And again, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know, as much as it may be contrary to our mind, persecution is not a curse. It's not something that we should hope for or hope that it doesn't come to us. Because it will. But instead, it's something that it's a blessing from God. When we are persecuted, we are blessed by God. And so, I would be... uh, I would be remiss to not go through uh, what persecution is not before we talk about what it is. And so persecution, I want to just quickly point out, is not as a result of ungodly behavior. 1 Peter 4 makes it very clear, but let none of you suffer as, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Uh, there is a story about a coworker who was always getting her nose in other people's businesses, uh, she would love to, at the workplace, just gossip about, uh, you know, this person did this, and she would just make up stories just to cause strife among there, and uh, basically love to kind of, you know, turn and, and make, make almost like a media story out of each day that they worked. And uh, when people would uh, respond to her, she'd pick up the phone and she'd give them attitude, and she would just constantly be this, this awful employee to work with. And uh, even, and then besides all that, she would even take things from work and, and just take it home with her. And she was caught multiple times, and then she would deny it each time. And it was just this constant uh, difficulty. And people would whisper behind her back, and they would say, you know what, this kind of person, this is ridiculous, the way she's acting. And she would just quietly say to herself each time, Lord, thank you for the persecution I'm enduring. And that's not the kind of person we're talking about. That's not the kind of persecution we're not talking about. 
Persecution is not for doing wrong, because even unbelievers are hated for those things. Persecution is uh, not when we're insensitive to other people. Uh, a lot of people are just plain rude and just are not kind to others. And that's not the kind of thing that we're talking about. Persecution, just quickly, is not by means of being rude, ungodly. Uh, otherwise, there would be a lot, of, uh, a lot of people saying that I'm persecuted for being unkind, unloving, and not acting like Christ. So then what is persecution? Well, persecution can take on a lot of forms. It could be verbal assault. It could be someone speaking untrue things about you behind your back. It could be someone belittling you for what your beliefs are or what you believe the Bible says. I remember I uh, was in an anthropology class, and uh, the teacher was so bold about his stance on things. And he had no shame. He one day said, we were talking about the Big Bang Theory, and he one day said, you know, there's some idiots out there who are going to tell you that there's a God who created this world. And they just refuse to believe the simple truth that's been proven over and over again that the only logical solution is the Big Bang Theory. And, uh, and then he proceeded to sarcastically, and yet he actually genuinely asked it, uh, is there anyone out there who truly believes that a God created this that doesn't believe the Big Bang Theory? And the as the hands went up, there was a few, not a lot, but there was a few. And as the hands up, you could just see him laughing to himself, snickering, just this big grin and this disapproval on his face, almost as if to say, how naive you are to believe that there could have been a God who could have done this. How foolish you are to think that someone could have created this. Where is the scientific proof? That was who he was. That's persecution for your faith. And what God says clearly happens in the very first verse of the Bible. Uh, Persecution could look like someone mocking you for just believing there is even a God. Persecution could be physical harm, which is what we probably think of more often, where someone threatens to kill you, uh, someone who places you in handcuffs or sends you off to jail. It may be uh, you know, where someone beats you up and causes you trauma from it. And finally, the, the one that maybe is most publicized in the news is uh, being martyred for your faith, being killed, being physically persecuted to the point of death for your faith in Christ. And although persecution has a lot of different forms, in a nutshell, it's my best definition of it. It's the hostility and the poor treatment the world shows you because of two reasons. It's your faith in Jesus Christ and for godly living. That's the kind of persecution we're talking about. Um, and although we might think, well, Persecution is really not that common in our country. I would say that you're wrong. The church is being persecuted nationwide, or not nationwide, but worldwide, uh, and even being martyred all around the world. Women and men are being beheaded, burned, drowned, hung, shot to death for their faith in Christ. But here in the USA, it's almost like a popularity contest. In fact, 75% of people polled in 2015 said that they were Christians. And I would imagine that if you genuinely looked at what each person believed, you'd find that less than even a fraction of those people genuinely know the Jesus of the Bible. Um, because when you actually look at what we believe as Christians, it's offensive. It's offensive to the world. It, it, people love to read verses that says, God is love, God is good. They love to read about the miracles he did. They love to read about um, 
you know, the good things that, you know, the, you know I said the miracles, the, um, just the kindness he showed and the love he showed to others. And that's all true. That's exactly who our God is. But when you start facing uh, the realities of sin and saying, you know, you're a sinner. Yeah, you need a Savior. You're unable to save yourselves. Without Jesus Christ, you'll spend eternity separated from a God who loves you. And if you don't repent, that's where you'll be forever. Hopeless and helpless without him. I remember uh, I was talking to a patient, not even uh, a month ago maybe, and uh, she wasn't a Christian. She wasn't claiming to be. Um, she was very, a lot of interesting views on life, but uh, we started talking and she said, you know, I'm accepting of all people. I don't, I don't care their background. I don't care where they come from. Um, and then she made a statement. She said, you know, but in general, all people, they're pretty good people, you know. They really have a heart of gold out there. And uh, she's like, I don't know, what, what do you think about that? And I was like, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a very popular opinion on this, but I told her, I was like, I believe in the Bible, and it's very clear that men and women are wicked, wickedly sinful through and through to the very core. It says in the Bible, there's none righteous, no, not one. And uh, I thought of verses like Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, other verses came to mind. Uh, From within the are out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. And as I was talking to this lady and explaining why I believed what I believed, and why man is not good, why they're really, to the very core, there is no righteous thing in them. Um, she quickly became very uncomfortable. She quickly was uh, trying to change the subject, and she quickly kind of just laughed it off as if I was just very out there on my thoughts. Um, and she tried to move it on to the next subject, but if you really step back on it, she didn't want to hear what I had to say. She hated the thought that man somehow is not good. And that's the thing is that that's essentially the truth you have to believe in order to accept the gospel. You know, and that's the thing with the gospel. It's offensive to the world because in order to accept it, I have to believe I'm a sinner who needs that salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, it doesn't make any sense to an unbeliever because... They love to think they know it all. They love, like this lady, she's just a picture of the world. Uh, the rest of the world is so similar to her. The idea of having to accept the fact that she's a sinner is blasphemous to her. The fact that she somehow is not good enough to get to heaven on her own is so out of line with how she thinks. The world says, I don't need help. I don't need a savior, and I certainly don't need Jesus in my life. And that's really the mentality of the world. And you think, oh, everyone in America just accepts you for your faith. But if you open your mouth regularly about the truth, if you genuinely spoke about the truth of who God is, about what you must do in order to accept uh, his free salvation, you'd find that people would despise you for your beliefs. You'd find that they're fine with you know, hearing that you know, God is love, but the second you bring up sin, that's it, no more. They hate it. They cannot stand it. And, uh, and I'll be honest with you, telling someone that they're a sinner is one of the hardest things you can possibly do. And yet, it is necessary, so necessary to do. I mean, think about your life. Aren't you glad that someone told you that you're a sinner? Yeah, I mean, where would we be? 
we wouldn't be here. We'd be off doing our own things. Imagine someone having cancer. And uh, you, know, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you got cancer. I, you need to begin aggressive chemo and radiation. Uh, and then the person, they get offended by the doctor, and they go storming out the door. They say, I'm not going back to that doctor. He likes to talk about his cancer to me. I don't like that. And while the words are hard to hear, you have cancer, the motivation behind the doctor, he has a genuine care about your well-being. He wants to see your best. He wants you to seek that cure out. And uh, in a similar way, as believers, we realize the condition of unbelievers. They are so much worse off than cancer. They have a sin problem that is leading them to hell. And we know the cure. And we're pointing them to that cure that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so when we tell people that they're sinners, we don't do it because we find enjoyment in telling them, you know, you're a sinner, you're you know, in a lot of trouble. We do it because we're trying to point them to the cure, the only cure found in Jesus Christ. And uh, remember, we do this out of a deep concern and a love for their souls. We, we see where they're going. We, we want more than anything for them to finally realize what we realized when we were still unbelievers. And while a doctor can offer cures through chemo and radiation, there's really no guarantee it's going to work. There's high probabilities, there's percentages they can prove in the past, but there is no guarantee that it will fully eradicate the cancer. But for our sin issue, we have a cure that's 100% guaranteed to work, never proven to fail, or never failed before, proven to be effective time and time again, something no drug company could ever claim on their labels. Jesus Christ is the solution to our sin problem. And as believers, we know the solution to man's biggest problem, sin. And it's our duty, our obligation as believers to tell the world about the cure that we found in Jesus Christ. And so, while we briefly talked about persecution, what it looks like, we should mention why persecution happens. And I mentioned it earlier uh, in passing that there's two reasons. It's for our faith in Jesus Christ, and for godly living is why we are being persecuted. In fact, John actually talks about this in chapter 3, where he says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus is the light that came into the world. He was free of any sin, perfect in every way. He came for the sole purpose of dying on the cross for your sins and mine. And you think, wow, he must be loved by everybody. Why wouldn't someone love him? And yet, we crucified him to a cross. He died for our sins because he was rejected. And the reason behind that is the world would rather live in their sin, they would rather live in the darkness because they love it so much than to come to Jesus Christ and repent. Uh, I've told this story before, but I think it's very fitting. Uh, there was a time when me and Sharon went to, uh, we went to Disney World. We really didn't think much about uh, the, the choices of where we'd stay. And everything was going well. It was a very cheap budget uh, hotel. And uh, day three came along, and everything was going good. And then we come back after an exhausting night, turn on the lights, cockroaches like, start squirming, <laughs> squirming away into the darkness as soon as the light hits. Uh, it turns on. And as gross as it was, um, I learned something that day. 
that cockroaches hate the light. They don't want to be found. They don't want to be seen. So they squirm away so they can't be seen. Uh, in the similar way, you know, that the bug hides itself from the light, the world has fled from the Lord. He is the light, and they fled away from him. And, and why did they do that? It's because they don't want to be exposed. Because when they see the Lord, they see his perfection, his holiness, it reveals their own wickedness. And by sheer contrast, Jesus exposes them for how truly sinful they are. And that makes people uncomfortable. They don't like to feel that I'm not a good person. I'm not righteous. I'm not holy before him. And as a follower of Christ, we're called to be the lights of the world. We're supposed to let our light shine before men and to live lives that are an example of how Christ lived his life. And when we do that, the Bible is clear, we will be hated by the world. Hated because living a life of holiness goes against the ways of the world. Being a genuine Christian is not a popular choice in today's world. You will be hated. And uh, the reason we can say that um, is because it tells us in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see, Jesus was persecuted by the very people he came to save, rejected by them, and if he is our master, then as servants of Christ, how can we expect any less? How could we expect the unbelieving world to treat us any differently than they treated him? He endured more suffering, more sorrows than we can ever imagine. And if we preach the same message that he preached, then we will also be suffering like he did. Uh, another passage that comes to mind in reinforcing this idea about suffering is, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. There's no denying that persecution will come upon those who live godly lives. It's a message that's not politically correct, a message that's not kind to the hearers in the sense of that they're a sinner. Uh, it hurts people's feelings. And so people hate the message we have. When the world looks at us, they see that we're different. They see that we're not like them, and they don't like it. In fact, um, it's similar to the story we read about, or we talked about earlier in Daniel, where they, the wicked officials, they hated Daniel because they saw this righteous behavior in him, and they realized, by sheer contrast, their own wickedness. And they didn't want anything to do with Daniel. And similar to us, the world's going to hate us for our righteous living, because they love their sin. They love the fleeting pleasures. They love being accepted by the world. They love being in darkness, away from the thoughts of God. They love it when no one tells them otherwise. They love the comforts they get in this life, although it's fleeting. And when a righteous person comes out and is outspoken for their faith in Christ, it leads them to resent us, to hate us, to despise us, because they see their own sinfulness. And so, persecution is not a matter of if it comes, but a matter of when it comes. And when persecution comes, what will we do? How will we respond? And our response is actually found in verse 12 of this passage. It says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Paul later uh, expresses the idea 
in 1 Corinthians of how he views persecution. He says, For our light affliction, which is, for but, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly, exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are, not, which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For these things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, the reason we can rejoice is because we have the right perspective. We have a perspective not of just the here and now, not of just the world as it is. We see past just this life. We see eternity. And when we look at eternity and see, you know what? (laughs) In light of eternity, persecution, like Paul said, it's a light affliction. We won't even, that'll be the last thing on our mind when we get there and see our Lord face to face. And uh, I love how Paul says it. He says, for me to die, or for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He could see that. There's so much better off, even if this world kills me. It's so much better off to be with the Lord forever. And if I live here on earth, then it's gain, because I have, I have opportunities to continue sharing this good news with unbelievers and see more and more people added to his kingdom. And so, as unbelievers, we have that perspective of eternity, and we also have the perspective of the unbelievers' eternity, where they'll go. And in light of that, that makes us desire so much to witness to them, to continue telling them the good news, regardless of any persecution that comes our way. Uh, You think of, I thought of the uh, disciples after they were imprisoned, and then they were brought before the high priest, and they were told sternly not to talk anymore about this Jesus. And yet this is how they responded. Despite the beating, despite the imprisonment, it says in Acts 5, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. I mean, think about that. They, they counted it a blessing. They rejoiced that they were just counted in the people who also suffered with Christ, counted you know, in the lives of the prophets. They were considered one of those kind of people who had the privilege to suffer for Christ. And notice that like, Satan would love to take this opportunity to try and say, you know what, he loves you, but it's because everything's going well. Imagine if persecution came, then he probably wouldn't follow you as well. And yet, that's the exact opposite that happens here. You have persecution that came, and yet it thwarted Satan's plan because God's message spread farther and farther and farther. They not only were not discouraged, but they were encouraged to continue telling more and more people. And so it should be with us that when we're persecuted, we should be rejoicing, glad, exceedingly happy, and tell more and more people because we know that the Lord is using us to witness these people. It's such a privilege to suffer shame for his name. Peter later goes on um, to remind us not to be alarmed, don't be fearful when this happens, but instead rejoice through your persecution because through it, Christ is glorified. He says, Beloved, do not think it is strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If they reproached you for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of God and of for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. That's the mindset of a Christian. 
A Christian who looks at persecution knowing that, you know what, through it, God is receiving the glory. Through it, this unsaved world is coming to know him. And that brings more and more people to his kingdom. He says that we are a blessed people. And so more than just having a joyful mindset, more than just that, God also says that he promises uh, rewards. Rewards to those who faithfully serve him and are persecuted for their faith and for godly living. Um, He starts off this passage, or he ends this passage by, uh, in verse 12, saying, uh, great is your reward in heaven. I mean, it's pretty crazy. You think, not only did I just trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's offered me an eternity in heaven, forever with him, and so I know I have that there already, and I know that no matter what happens in this life, that's a guarantee. And yet God has also promised a great reward for those who endure persecution. A reward that doesn't change with the stock markets. You know, I... I have a very small amount in like a 401k I had to start up. And, uh, you know, it fluctuates, it goes up and down, and there's no predictability with it. It's, uh, it's, you know, who knows? Tomorrow it could be down, you know, 50%. You never know. And yet, this reward that God offers us, it never changes. It's non-corruptible. It uh, never goes out. It's eternal forever for us. And uh, although I can't really give you the specifics on what this great reward is, uh, we know that the one who promised to it, the one who promised us it, is the one that says that every good and perfect gift comes from. And so if that's the person who's saying that this reward is coming from, then we can guarantee it's a great gift. It's a great reward. But we, uh, we later read about, in Revelation, about a reward that's specific. It's called the crown of life. In Revelation 2, he's talking to a church that's about to go through a lot of persecution. It's going to suffer a lot for Christ's sake. And yet he tells them, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Essentially, it's it's a, a reward to those who hold fast the profession in Christ, who say, you know what, no matter what happens to me, I'm not recanting my faith in Christ. And they're persecuted even to the point of death. God promises a reward, a crown of life to those people. And now the encouraging thing to know is that we're not alone. We don't go through life alone in these persecutions. We don't suffer by ourselves. There are many people who have come before you and also have suffered similarly or even to a greater extent than we have. And so... It should give us encouragement to know that we're in good company with those who have also suffered in, our, in the past. Uh, it tells us at the end of this passage, uh, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's written there as an encouragement to us. It's written so that we can look at these men of great faith and follow after their example by being ready to be persecuted as well. And there's a lot of people to mention that I'm going to try and go through, so we're just going to go real quickly, but... This is just a quick survey, not even a full one. And there's many more you could add to it. But we already talked about the story of Daniel. Daniel, persecuted by these wicked men for his godly living and for his bold faith in God. But if we went back even farther in the Bible to Genesis, we'd read about a prophet, Abel. Jesus called Abel a prophet, and he was murdered by his brother Cain. And although we don't know an entire lot about, or a whole lot about uh, Abel, we know that he was a man of genuine faith, 
a man that gave the offering that God required. He gave up, the, uh, he offered the firstborn of his flock. It says that God respected Abel and his offering. And we, what we can gather from this is that Abel was a righteous man. He lived closely to the will of God. And yet his brother Cain did not. His brother Cain wanted to do his own thing. He, got his, he brought fruit before God. And because Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was not, Cain's heart was filled with anger. And ultimately, it says he murdered his brother. And Abel is just one of the examples of a prophet persecuted and ultimately murdered for godly living. You read about Jeremiah. I mean, he has more. You could do a whole sermon on Jeremiah. But um, he's called the weeping prophet and for, good mean, and for good reason. He suffered abuse of all kinds. He, uh, he was a faithful prophet to God who was rejected by men. They refused to listen to his words. He was beaten, placed into stocks. He was, he was served death threats after death threats. He was left to die in the mud. And he was ridiculed and called a liar by the very ones he spoke the truth of God to. And uh, he knew what it was like to suffer persecution for God. You read about Zechariah. He was stoned to death for rebuking people for their turning to idols. Elijah, given death threats by Jezebel after confronting the prophets of Baal. And it doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. Persecution continues on in the New Testament as well. You see John the Baptist. He was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. He was placed into prison and then ultimately beheaded for his faith. Stephen, stoned for his faith. Paul, whipped, beaten, robbed, stoned, imprisoned, mocked. And ultimately it's likely that he was beheaded for his faith in Christ. But should any of this surprise us? Should any of this alarm us? Should we be worried that this is, oh no, this is not what I was expecting when I became a Christian? No. This is all clearly stated in the Bible. John again tells us, remember the words I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As believers, Jesus is our master. He endured more persecution than we will ever know. I mean, think back to his very beginning of this. When we started this Matthew study, we read about Herod already, just at, right at the birth, already trying to kill him off. He already, you know, put a thing, two years and under will be killed. Already God being or trying to persecute him. Then later, when he starts his earthly ministry, he's rejected by the very people he came to save. Out of their mouths came the words, crucify him, crucify him. They mocked him. They spit upon him. They beat him. They cursed at him. They took his garments away. They said, here is the king of the Jews. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they pierced his hands and his feet and hung him on a cross to die, despite being sinless, despite being perfect, despite never committing anything wrong in his life. And if, and if he was hated by the world, if he was rejected and ultimately killed, if that's what the world did to our master, then as servants, how can we expect anything less? And clearly we see that evidence in the Old Testament with the prophets being persecuted for their faith. And then we also see in the New Testament how the believers endured that persecution. Being a follower of Christ will lead to persecution. Being a follower of Him will lead for two reasons, for godly behavior and for our faith in Him. But take encouragement when you're insulted, when men say all kinds of things against you falsely, and when they persecute you even to the point of death, 
Know that you're in good company. Know that you're also with those who are just like you in the past, who have stood up for their faith in Christ. And it's an encouragement to us to know that we're not alone in our persecution. Many others have suffered just like us. And it's an incredible privilege to be considered worthy to take shame or to be shamed for the name of Christ. And we know in light of persecution that one day we're going to spend eternity with our Lord forever. We sang that song face to face that uh, Matt led. And that's, that's the hope that we have, that one day we'll be with our Lord forever. And so in light of all those things, this persecution we endure is but a light affliction. There is nothing they can do to us because ultimately we'll be forever with our Lord in heaven. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful that we are a blessed people when we endure persecution. And Lord, we know that persecution will come upon us, Lord, and we know that as faithful followers of you, Lord, that's a guarantee. But Lord, we pray that we would respond in a way of being joyful and being exceedingly glad, Lord, because we know that they persecuted you also. And Lord, we, we just pray that we remember that, Lord, we are witnessing to these people out of love for them, out of a, a real desire for their well-being, their spiritual well-being. And Lord, we want to see many more people added to your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we just keep an internal mindset, Lord, knowing that all these persecutions we endure are just for a moment. And Lord, we'll forever be with you in heaven. And Lord, we look forward to that day where we can see you face to face. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.